if you've got a problem, you deal with the cause. You don't deal with the symptom. Because once you've dealt with the cause, the symptom goes away. If we keep using herbicide to control unwanted plants, history has shown it gets more and more difficult. The wheat's not growing because of deficiency of herbicide. It's growing because of a deficiency of fertility of the soil. Hi, I'm Susie. And I'm James. And you're listening to Soils for Life. Each episode, we're bringing you stories about soil, the opportunities in the ground, and the challenges above it. The industrialisation of agriculture has created large paddocks of monoculture crops and increased their chemical burden on farmers and their environments. Global herbicide use has continued to increase as farmers have shifted to no-till practices and adopted herbicide-tolerant crop cultivars over the last 30 years. One result of this is that the list of herbicide-resistant weeds is growing. Some farmers spend huge amounts of money on herbicide and scarce time removing weeds. Meanwhile, exactly how much damage is being done to native plant species and soils is not yet fully known. Either way, the current model is not sustainable. In this episode, we're exploring a paradigm shift to an ecological systems approach to weed management. With Soils for Life agroecologist Sarah Fee, we will visit four farmers to understand their changing relationship to weeds, including a grazier, seed producer, a farmer who has enlisted the help of goats, and another who has developed no-kill cropping. First up, James sat down with grazier Martin Royds from Braidwood, New South Wales, to hear about his ideas on managing weeds. Can you tell me about yourself and your farm? Okay, my name's Martin Royds. I uh, am the present custodian of Jilmatong. I've been here since 1985 when I noticed my grandparents needed a hand and came and gave them some assistance. And we did plough up some paddocks that had a lot of power tussock and cocky boot lace on it. And uh, I started spraying and sowing pastures as well. I then poisoned myself and realised that maybe that was not a good idea. You said you poisoned yourself, Martin. Mm. What, what happened? Um, I believed the uh, chemical reps who said, this stuff you can drink. And uh, if it hits the soil, it becomes inert. So when I got it on myself, I just rubbed some dirt on it and that got rid of that. That was Roundup. So 2,4-DA mine, flopropanate, MCP, dicamba, all those lovely chemicals which we used to spray as I was a contract sprayer. Yep. And then one day I blew up and I looked like a Michelin man. So you were a contract sprayer. What period was that? Early 1990s. I bought a spray rig and you'd go around and you'd kill people's thistles and oh, not much straight, oh, a bit of straighter tussock with the flupropanate, but more um, sorrel thistles, par, you know, basically pasture improvement. So after overexposure to chemicals, getting sick, was that when you stopped spraying? Absolutely. But before then, you were still like, this is part of this oh. is part of the practice. This is what yeah. we have to do. No, I was. I believed all the sales pitch, and it was fantastic. You could spray one day and sow the next. So what happened when you had to stop doing that? Because you still had some problems that uh, those chemicals were solving for you? Well, I did notice that it's a really good 
uh, business model being a chemical sprayer for weeds because the weeds chase the spray rig. The more you spray, the more weeds you get. Fantastic business model. I could spray a place and know that in three years' time the person would be ringing me up because the weeds had come back worse. And a friend rang up and said, how much does it cost to spray and sow a paddock? And back then it was $240 a hectare. How long does it last? And we were set stockers, and it was five to seven years. And then he said, how long does it take to get our money back? And I went, oh, I've never done that. And he said, I've just done it. It's 10 to 12 years. And I went, oh. He used an expletive, which we won't use on the here. But, um, yeah, we were basically all going broke. It was interesting. Yesterday I had the Department of Ag people here, and the lady said, how did you manage to change over to organics, you know, the loss of income. I mean, you would have been making, say, $1,000 a week before and then, you know, you're not making as much. And I went, uh, let me tell you the facts. We were losing $100 a week. And when you cut out all the money we were spending on fertilisers, chemicals and all that, you actually started making money straight away. A lot of people don't think about it that way, do they, though, Martin? Oh, we, we're told that if you want to be a good farmer, you should kill every weed perfect pasture is like your lawn it's all the monoculture and the same height and it's interesting because I, I watched some of the funding for 30 years this group up the road from here was just wanting more and more chemicals to fight this rate of task again for 30 years it was getting worse and worse and worse and yeah i think if you try the same method to get rid of a problem time and time again yeah first one of madness but Mm. We tend to do that. We don't stop and look and think, is that being effective? That's some of the training that we got at Holistic Management. Being honest with yourself, stopping and going, okay, I sprayed that last year, five years ago, 20 years ago, the weed's worse. What else can I do? How do you think so, we can we can change this war on weeds that we've got <laughs> at the moment? Um, actually, probably by stop calling it a war on weeds, yeah. Once you get down this path, instead of every day walking out the door thinking, oh, what have I got to kill today? And that was our life, was going out and fighting another battle every day. To now going out, what can I observe that's actually making my business better, my farm look better, my natural capital increase? And every day you learn something new and it's totally different feeling for a farmer I can assure you because we all know that sadly it's one of the highest levels of suicide a lot of depression and all that and some of that is due to the chemicals some of it's just the whole process of fighting a battle every day and, and you're losing. Like Martin has completely changed his relationship with the environment and as a result his soils have sprung to life. So we have Sarah Fee here with us in the studio. Sarah, as an agroecologist, can you explain to us what the impact of those herbicides is on the plants and soils? It depends on the chemistry but it can actually be affecting them from all those angles. So it could be affecting the community in the soil and their capacity you know, can actually change the dynamics of that community and the composition of that community, and therefore that can change the availability of nutrients that that community brings to the plant. Or it can literally yeah, affect 
the plant itself. It could chelate certain nutrients and make them not available functionally in the plant. Um, so it, it's, you know, running at lower capacity um, until we, you know, maybe put a foliar nutrition over the top and try and help it access them again. And like I've had farmers actually in a select area because there was only weeds in one area choose to do a buffered herbicide and when we looked at satellite imagery of the vegetation index around that, they could literally see to the line where the herbicide had gone, even though it was a selective that wasn't meant to actually hurt that crop. So what does that mean for most of our cropping soils in Australia who've had where those places have had you know decades of what we now call conventional management? One of their biggest unseen and unappreciated workforce, the, the fungal community, has been decimated. And it is so critical for nutrient and water delivery and disease management. So a key focus is to choose management choices that actually support the fungal community coming back into the system. As a coach, you've been working with farmers to increase their fungal communities and restore soil ecosystem function on their property. So with many complex ecological and significant economic decisions to make, it must be really overwhelming to change their practices. So one of the farmers you've been working with is Russell Young from Queensland. He's a cropping farmer. What has his journey been in shifting his approach to weeds? Yeah, Russell's is a great example of someone early in transition, you know, really working still through all the questions around how do I manage this differently? How do I appreciate these weeds that are showing up? We can quite quickly drop the fungicides and insecticides. How do I shift across to using less herbicide? How do I reduce the amount that I'm using in the landscape now and do things differently? Something that probably is one of the biggest challenges in a cropping environment. My name is Russell Young from Young Seeds. We farm two properties. So we're in the middle of the Darling Downs, 220 k's west of Brisbane. And yeah, we're fully cropping, uh, fully grown, no animals in our system whatsoever. We sell to an awful lot of farmers, just individual farmers. Uh, seeds are a very difficult market to be in. You can, you can produce a heap of it and sell none of it. You could have sold twice as much if you had it. Uh, it's a really hit and miss sort of a business to be in, but uh, you know, look, it works for us. I mean, it's value adding and that's what we've sort of always been about. Uh, I guess weeds are, oh look, they're a challenge for all farmers, no doubt. I think, I think there's two mindsets there. So there's either, you kill everything that looks like a weed or in the regen space you try and roll with the weeds and let them help you get to where you probably need to be. I can live with that to a point it's very but it's very difficult for me if you know for me to let certain weeds go that are going to end up in a seed crop that there's a risk of us not getting 100% of them out through the grading process to clean that grain and sell it for seed then I've got issues with that because I know 99% of our customers aren't regen farmers. If I sell them a line of seed that's got something in it that they don't want, I'll probably never sell them another bag of seed ever again. So I need to be really careful with that. So I, I understand the philosophy behind let your weeds grow and and let them help you build your soil and solve the problems quicker, etc. But for me right now, that's a battle I can't kind of let go of. You know, to let weeds go. If I can make that work in our system, I'm happy to take that on. But I need to get to that point where I can see that 
I'm not going to crash and burn the, the bigger part of the business to, to do that. There's plenty of people saying, you know, you let your weeds go, but are they the ones that are invested in the business or are they the ones on the outside looking in? I mean, I don't know, but, you know, I think there's a bit of a tug of war there too. It's easy for an agronomist to come and say, do this, do that. But if he hasn't got the checkbook on the table when it all goes wrong, then ultimately the person with the decision has to make that call really. And I guess that's how I see it for me. And I would think all farmers are probably the same. We can all probably live with certain types of weeds. And if we do go down that path of letting some things go, it'll only be like we've done with the multi-species. It'll only be in a little patch. I'd be happy enough to isolate one strip or something and go with it and see where it ends up. I think farmers need to step into it in a small way and I mean, because what works in this area won't work necessarily in the middle of New South Wales. They've got this different weed issues there, probably to what we've got, etc. So it's about working out what fits in your area and what you can live with in your business. So we're on the lease block, yep. which is called Wassel Park. So wheat this year, barley last year, and then it was sorghum the year, you know, 18 months prior to that. So that's in the last few years as to what's happened here. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. So have you got the plants that you're considering that you might need some management on showing up here? Like so your weeds? <laughs> that what what do you think you're gonna expect to see from now on? Oh, I, I think we'll see a range of summer weeds, you know, uh, your calthrop, you know, through um, bladder capnia, all those all those sort of summer weeds coming through. Uh, obviously they'll be feather top, they'll be this fleet main in here now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Milk thistle, yeah, no, just the general run of the mill things that yeah. we would typically see, yeah. What should Russell be aiming for, Sarah? Well, it's great to see this level of activity around those root systems. I mean, if it is at the, be the beginnings of all, what a kid mine seeds can be known as, but they're, you know, part of giving the real earthy smell. Helping so, break so, down residues. That's it on that route there, obviously. Yeah, so that's life. Mm. Clear, easy way to see life. You know, and that happen around a plant that you guys don't necessarily like to see. But it's got a... A plant called the weed. Yeah. <laughs> but it's got a healing property that's bringing to the landscape. Yep. Including bringing your boron to the surface. So milk thistles are bringing boron up. With the white sap. That's apparently one of the things, the plants that have that yeah, white sap yeah, yeah, yeah. could be working on boron. When people are starting, like Russell is, on a journey towards a different way of farming, are there particular weeds or the particular weed management issues that seem to always happen for people at the start of the process? If they've got, you know, a broad leaf that's quite smothering and they don't get a good germination, that can set them their crop back. It's often the broadleaf weeds or wire weed and things like that that can actually, if they do get away, get in the way of their ability to harvest the crop. Yeah, so there can be logistical issues, I suppose, down the track that they don't want to see themselves enduring. A lot of those weeds are classic of highly bacterial soils and phosphorus access issues, a lot of the broadleaf and those sorts of weeds. So they're showing us that their soil health is way back at the early early stages and very low fungal communities. So for me, that's when we observe, righto, who have we got here in terms of weed spectrum? Have we actually chosen the right crop for what these weeds are telling us? Because the conventional mindset has, if you've got broadleaf weeds, 
plant a, say, a, a cereal crop because then it's easy to select a herbicide that deals with those broadleaf weeds in the cereal. Whereas the soil is actually telling you that right now I'm growing really well broadleafs. So in terms of actually growing according to what nature is giving you the signals on, you're better off actually putting a broadleafing crop in earlier in dry and getting the jump on those weeds when you know that that's your weed spectrum. So that's a really big shift in mindset and can seem a bit daunting initially until they've given it a go to, to see what the plants are actually telling them. If they, or if they've got weeds that are classic of compaction, like fleabane or feathertop roads or some of your thistles and things like that, then you know, plant a crop that you actually know is really good at dealing with that and is actually going to, while it's growing you, you know, a cash yield, it's also working on that resource constraint as well. So, yeah, it's sort of using these plants to, to even design and, and develop your rotation. Do you think we need a new word for weeds? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Mother Nature's mix. I love it. It's in line with the concept that plants are providing exactly what the soil needs. Now, Sarah, you've visited several farms for Soils for Life, including Bruce Maynard, who farms in the central west plains of New South Wales. He has cattle and sheep operations, along with no-kill cropping. He also develops stress-free stockmanship and self-herding, which really changes the way he thinks about weeds. Yeah, it was great to actually, you know, see his no-kill cropping in the flesh and walk in his paddocks. And I guess his practice is it a great example of learning to appreciate those plants for all that they're actually giving to the system and realising there's different gifts that they're giving to the system and in different ways that they're contributing to his cash flow. It definitely is a system that works best in collaboration with the grazing animal because he's got all these other plants bringing, you know, more complex amino acids and proteins and, and, and compounds into their diet that are helping them have higher health outcomes and production outcomes. How would you say your journey has been mm. with yeah. the plants in the landscape? Plants in the landscape is maybe the way I regard most of those things that previously would be in the category of weeds. Yeah. Two ways I guess I'd categorise anything <coughs> as a uh, potentially a weed or not is a, a business look and a biological look. Mm -hmm. Because in most cases, most plants aren't in a biological weed category. Those ones in, in there are only plants that completely dominate a, um, a landscape at the exclusion of most other elements. If you're a biologist, you'd say, yes, well, that is a, especially if it's a new introduction into that landscape, that is uh, a highly undesirable uh, uh, thing to have, have there. From a, a farmer's or a business perspective, of course, anything that, um, from a production point of view, that you cannot make money from is essentially a plant that isn't of use to you as a business. Mm -hmm. Now, whether it then is troublesome depends on the, the quantity of it in the landscape and how much it's excluding other things that you do want to make money from. Mm -hmm. So a lot of plants now that are uh, much less than, than desirable, one might uh, think about some thistles and that sort of thing, that we have varying small amounts of, 
of um, uh, populations that come and go are inconsequential to me as such. If, however, my operation was some uh, something different such as wool growing, those plants would become quite important because they would be something that would make a difficulty for producing wool. So um, sometimes uh, uh, plant species get categorised because of the business operations over the top. That's understandable, but not every plant is a weed and, uh, and it depends on, on our definition. They're pretty much champion thistles this year. We've got some here that uh, are going past three metres in height. <laughs> this is uh, sort of the sort of stuff that most farmers are embarrassed about and would feel very badly that, that uh, they have a large extent. It's just only a seasonal effect here because of extraordinary rainfall events. And in order to get rid of that one particular problem, I would end up killing a lot of other things. That's not my de desire. So they're not a uh, desirable uh, uh, plant for me to have. They're a, a nuisance and in the road a bit, but they will soon be gone. Uh, they uh, don't stick around forever. So my desire to eliminate them is, is framed on the fact that in a few months time, the, uh, the residue will be gone. That will collapse and, and be gone again. So they'll have brought things to the surface that, that couldn't have been utilized otherwise. And even the uh, native parrots will uh, have a great lot of fun eating their <laughs> seeds for the next little while. So they are a resource for the, uh, for the natural sense. Uh, next year will be different. There won't be as many thistles of, uh, like this around here. And so we'll watch the ebb and flow go and they're just a component of the whole landscape. Weeds are an interesting thing for us from a human point of view because a lot of times we'll expend a lot of effort on, on particular plants because of the visual nature of them. So a handful of, of very large thistles across an otherwise undisturbed grazing paddock gets people out there with the hoe or a spray or something to get rid of that handful of individuals. Mm. Biologically or economically, completely unimportant to the whole thing, but the look of things, they don't want to see it because if everybody else's crops don't have any weeds poking up through the crop, then you, you're going to be the one that gets the ribbing at the, uh, at the pub uh, <laughs> afterwards. But the economic point can't be complete eradication because it isn't that way if we had uh, were after insects in an orchard or something like that. We would check how many and we would put up with a certain percentage because we know that one, it doesn't affect us economically to a certain percentage. And secondly, that we need those organisms ticking away in the landscape in order that a great number of other organisms are operating. So your perception of the plants as they enter the landscape, is there any consideration of for you what they're doing or you more see them as carbon or food resource? and diversity for your animals. If I do see a, a new plant <laughs> arrive of whatever sort, I'm uh, very much looking at that and wanting to see whether it has any potential to be a dominator across the whole thing. In other words, a cane toad arriving mm -hmm. in, in a plant sense. Is it going to take over? If it, if it does have a tendency for that, I'll do my best to, um, to fight that introduction but if it's a plant that arrives, even if it's a potential dominator, if animals are consuming it, then straight away it's a very, very different path than if animals completely reject it. And I guess for you, these plants are all potential mouthfuls. 
So maximising the quantity of mouthfuls and the diversity of mouthfuls to keep the animal engaged and nourished is sort of the outcome that you're looking for. Mm. Right. As soon as we change and expand this smorgasbord, the dietary mixing, just think about the compounds working together, right? So you can eat more of this, right, if you have that. You can eat more dry sayo biscuits if you have butter to go with it. Mm -hmm. yeah, you I mean. might like celery, but you put peanut butter on it. Yeah, <laughs> the right. kids eat it. That's yeah, my experience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. So in the time that you've been practising no-kill cropping, have you seen a transition in the species that show up in your landscape? Yeah, certainly um, many less of the annuals that we would have experienced before, uh, a long list of undesirable or less desirable ones, which would fit the weed <laughs> categorisation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they're just not getting the conditions conducive for them to germinate. That's what goes and doesn't reappear. So we would still assume that we've got a seed bank there, but if it's not getting the conditions to germinate, it's just gradually degrading there. We know uh, from experience, if we go and disturb our grasslands by any fashion, if we're doing a, a new roadway or, or ripping for a, a pipeline or something, guess what we'll get? We'll get an explosion along those disturbance mm. events of the sets of plants that we used to battle a lot with in our conventional agriculture because of that disturbance. Mm. sounds to me like one of the biggest challenges is the way we've learned to read the land. We see weeds as signs of bad management, but if we can change the glasses we're wearing, we could possibly see that this plant is telling us something. It's an indicator, a piece of information, but also that that plant has a function that can be harnessed. Exactly. And you know, some of the weeds that they might have often reacted to, sit back a moment and go, is this really going to impact at harvest time? like I feel it is and previous generations would say, is it really? Will it really just flow out the back of the he uh, header and it's not actually turning up in the sample? Yeah, it might look a bit messier than it used to look, but does it actually logistically cause me any dramas or not? Another great one is actually to, as we're shifting and lifting soil health with their change of practice, a weed might show up, but it actually might be dwarfed. It's small, so it actually might not do as much. It's not actually going to cause you any sort of drama. An example of that is in, I've got a Fasalia seed trial on one farm, and then there's chickpeas all the way around it. Um, and chickpeas can be a crop that says, hello, any plant species that you'd like to hang out with me, come and join me. Some people would say it can get quite weedy depending on the conditions of the soil. So there was wireweed quite prolific and, and getting quite in amongst because it's an organic crop of chickpeas, whereas we noticed in the Fasalia there was wireweed still there, but it hadn't actually progressed. It was still tiny. It hadn't developed into a bigger plant. So something was going on there with the, the Fasalia that actually was working on, well, the phosphorus-potassium balance that I know wireweed's working on. Fasalia was aiding in that, so the wireweed didn't get away. So that was quite interesting. We've been talking a lot about the need for a mindset shift. And on the other hand, we have state and national weeds plans, which are often very prescriptive. And yet many of the farmers are saying we need to be more observant before making any decision. 
So how do we incorporate that mindset into these plans? That is quite a challenge. I guess it's grabbing the opportunities to have those discussions with people that are actually making those lists around the different weeds that are on different levels of eradication requirements depending on whether it's local or state or federal. They keep um, using the same management strategy and they're not actually changing the landscape view. They've still got a, a problem with that plant and they've been doing the same stuff for 30 or 40 years and there's still the same prevalence of that weed because they're not actually going to the root cause. You know, some plants can be landscape stabilisers, especially on slope or where there's a lot of soil movement. So you've actually got to embrace some of the landscape function. Well, the quote you shared the other day that said, if you take a plant out of the landscape, you have to be willing to do the function of that plant. That's right. Yep, yep. When I was 10 years old, we used to swim in the creek down the road from us on a farmer's land. And then he was told to remove all the willows in the creek. And then the whole stream collapsed and we couldn't swim in it anymore. And that was my first time of thinking, that plant was doing a function. (laughs) When you control weeds using typically herbicides, you're dealing with a symptom. You're not dealing with a cause. So until we start dealing with the cause, the symptoms are always going to come back. We'll be doing that forever. My name's Bruce Davison. I live at Candelow, Bega Valley, southeast New South Wales. My wife and I have a 400-acre farm uh, we purchased in 1997. When we purchased this farm, it was all ryegrass. We found out later it, had, uh, it was previously lovegrass and it had been sprayed out, re-sown. We came along and it looked great and bought it and um, within a year it went straight back to lovegrass a plant we'd never seen before. I've been studying lovegrass ever since. And my original thought was I'd, by increasing fertility of the soil, I could get rid of it perhaps in, within five to ten years. Um, that hasn't been the case. But I've learned a great deal about managing lovegrass ever since, and I've found that it's not the demon it's made out to be. However, it's very difficult to manage. In many ways, to my mind, Weeds are a a community issue because of the way that plants can spread. How have your uh, neighbours responded to your approach to weed management? At times, uh, they might be critical, not highly, open-minded. Some of them have changed what they do and and followed some of what I do, but they're still in that, largely in that mindset of like following the law. Councils have a have a role, uh, you know, and they have a legal role to tell you to control your weeds. Well, when the council first came and saw us on controlling lovegrass, because at that time you were supposed to control it, and they were spraying it all over the place, and you know, sometimes a bit of dissidence works. The weed department came out and visited us not long after we shifted here, and they said, "What are you going to do with the lovegrass?" And I said, "Well, I I don't know yet, but I'm not going to do what you do." And, and, the, and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're spraying it. And he said, yep. And I said, well, one day the light will come on that what you're doing is not working. And he looked at me rather unhappily. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you've been spraying it in this district since the 1950s. It's 70 years. Every year there's more than there was last year. 
all you're doing is spreading it because you're degrading the land. And he, and he said, oh, so what are you going to do? So I said, well, I'm going to slash it to start with, mulch it, put the organic matter on, down on the soil surface and keep it young and graze it. And I, don't, I, I really don't know, but I'm, I'm absolutely not going to spray it. You know, they, they control the weeds with herbicide. Um, that just creates a, an environment the weeds really like. And as you know, some weeds become resistant to herbicide. So they have these rules that you've got to control your weeds. Well, as I worked out, controlling the weeds is about not letting them set seed. So all I had to do was slash, at that time, 20 metres of my boundary of lovegrass when it was about to set seed, and I was controlling the spread of it. That was easy. What I started doing four years ago was um, I started making that lovegrass into hay. Because if you've got a, a lovegrass dominant farm, which we have, in winter, it's not good quality feed. In years I haven't bothered with oats, I just make lovegrass hay because the cattle also perform very well on lovegrass hay. So that's one economic use of it. Obviously, if you've got a large farm and a lot of lovegrass, you can't put the whole lot into hay. I mean, you can, but the, the um, economics and, and the time in, involved is, is extremely high, but you can do it to a portion of your farm. And that's when I had it tested. And it was 18.7% protein, 9.1 energy. So same energy level as oat and hay. So, yeah, that's, that's where we're at. When we purchased this property, it had 39 trees on it. 12 of them were weeping willows in the creek. Uh, since then, we've planted 15,000 and fenced off all our creeks, put in reticulated water. We're continuing on developing the farm. So we're developing it along ecological lines rather than economic lines. Because as I've often said, the foundation of economics is ecology. So ecology should come before economics. And, you know, when we're not in a crisis state, we can shift slowly. You don't have to, it's not a, let's, let's draw the line here and don't do that anymore. You've got to shift slowly into it and slowly build up the ecology of the soil, the fertility of the soil. And it gets easier and easier over time. If it's more expensive to apply herbicide to weeds than to allow them to do their job to repair soils, then I can see an economic argument to approach plants that we don't want in this way but that is a real change of thinking isn't it absolutely and that thinking is all about short-term gain sure you can get rid of your weeds with herbicide resow a new pasture etc or, or introduce new species there's lots of things you can do but if you don't consider what's going to happen next year and the year after and, and a decade's time you end up like a dog chasing its tail because weeds are a reflection of the nutrient levels in the soil. So when the soil's out of balance, certain plants will grow. When we bought our farm, because it had a history of high herbicide use, when that stopped, blackberry started moving in, and we started getting a lot of blackberry, and that's a result of soil conditions, too much beating, if you like. Don't use any herbicide. I don't spray blackberry. So we introduced goats. Sure, we had to uh, upgrade our fencing, but what I found with the blackberry, and I think this is a really good example, 
If you let blackberry grow until it shades out all the other plants, within about five years, the soil will be so enriched. And in on our place, it grows in love grass. If I leave the blackberry there for about five years with a closed canopy, and then I graze it out with goats, it takes about three years to kill the blackberry. They open up, the goats open up in the first year because they only eat the leaves. And then those canes die, and the next year the roots put up a few more, and in and, and three years it's all gone. The pasture that comes back, and that is um, microlina, prairie grass, rye grass, native herbs. I probably couldn't afford to sow such a high-quality pasture. That's because the blackberry lifted the fertility of the soil. Lovegrass, does, 10 years after, lovegrass still does not come back where blackberry was. And for about four years, I was asked to be on a, a weeds committee. And during that, I showed them what was happening on our place with blackberry. And, and the council weeds inspector said to me, well, are, are you suggesting that we get farmers to plant blackberry? And, and I said to him that, you know, if for whatever reason we didn't have access to fertilisers, if we wanted to lift fertility of our land, if you put one paddock, or, you know, say a seventh of our farm into blackberry, left it for five years, farmed, farmed the rest of it, and then rotated around the whole farm, after blackberry for five or six years, you won't need to put fertiliser on that land for 10, 15 years. If you keep that going, no longer need fertiliser. And it's not as though there's no economic value in blackberries because goats get very fat on blackberry. They love, they love it. If you change the way you think of that particular weed, it can become an asset. Wow, that's a real mindset shift. <laughs> but I do love blackberries. <laughs> this seems like a complete paradigm shift away from instruments for regulation of problem plants. How do you think that we can advance that paradigm shift for people who are working for the public good? Yeah, so Sarah, what are the practice changes that can be adopted to reduce herbicide use? We're working towards a mindset of we don't actually want to be using herbicides. So we've got tools to be trying, whether that's planting at a different time, like planting dry and getting the jump on the weeds. So we've got the seed in the ground prior to the, the rainfall event germinating the weeds whether we've actually um, got a full disturbance planter, so full sweeps, you know, tines t digging out the weeds as we're planting, whether we increase the plant density of the crop to actually increase the competition. Um, we might change the row spacing, the rows closing quicker, so therefore the plant that we're choosing to grow, you know, might close over canopy and smother out the weeds. So it's, again, that whole idea of competition. Whether we've got inter-row cultivation that we can take the weeds out in between the plants as, as they're growing or whether we yeah we do select a herbicide but we're buffering that with biologicals that reduce the amount that we might need to use and have it um, sucking into the plant more effectively so it, it works at a lower rate and the biological products that are with that are also helping with the degradation of that and moving it out of the system more quickly and then yeah, you've got other ways that you man manage your residues and whatnot post-harvest, like roller crimping or those sorts of things to try and give good ground cover to um, stop some of those plants that actually have light as their stimulus to germinate. If they're covered under a, a, a thick mulch canopy, then they mightn't actually get triggered to come away. And some of those decisions 
you might um, make depending on the, the weed spectrum that you know that you have, whether you won't do disturbance or others actually need to be buried if the seed's on surface so that they don't get the triggers to, to germinate. So some of what they, you choose to do does depend on what weed or the plant <laughs> that is actually causing you, yeah, grief. But I guess it's learning that they're actually telling them something about either a resource constraint, whether they've got a compaction issue, whether they've got a nutritional uh, signal going on that they, those plants are actually helping work on, whether they're bringing nutrients from down at depth. Um, like in these wet conditions right now, you, you can have your sulfur and boron and silica and things have moved nitrates, nitrogen moved down the profile. And so there's a lot of weeds that'll actually be actively bringing them back to soil service for us. So they're actually giving us um, services. They're actually helping us if we allow them. There's one of the three that we put uh, the multi-species into, so a 12-way multi-species into May last year. Uh, so you can see some of the plants here, obviously, that have survived through that period. We then went into a summer mix, so there is some summer, seed, uh, summer plants growing that, that went into the following summer crop. So yeah, look, there's some, uh, some plantain, there's cowpeas, uh, some oats. We've got chicory over the back, the bigger plants are chicory. There's a bit of wheat. This year was, did have a cash component to it, so we were able to get some uh, money back out of this paddock. And interestingly, I guess, uh, off the same area in a multi-species combination as against a monoculture, that the, the grain yield was seven tonne in the same area and in the monoculture, it was 10 tonnes. So, yeah, you know, it's 70%, but I'm quite happy with that. Yield is not the biggest thing for us right now. You know, I mean, it'd be great if it was the same, but it's more about trying to build the soil health and, and obviously there is value in that. Are there any differences in the number of generations of weeds you might be seeing due to your cultural practice? In the multi-species paddock, there's no doubt that the milk thistle that came up in the block out here beside the silos, never grew a decent plant. Right, so they were quite small, quite stunted, very purple in colour, did not do well at all, where normally, you know, they'd be three foot high, no trouble at all, and quite a big plant. They were really, really stunted, significantly stunted. So I know where they were was quite wet in that paddock, but other plants around them were doing quite well. So I, my question is, has that practice of multi-species changed the behaviour of the milk thistle in that particular area compared to what it would normally have been? I, my observation so far is yes, but it will be interesting to see what happens going forward. But yeah, that's, that's a definite clear one for me. That farming practice in that paddock has definitely changed the way those weeds have behaved compared to what I would have said in a normal, traditionally farmed or operated paddock. Russell has been experimenting with practice change to reduce the number of his weeds, and he's been documenting the outcomes. So now he's really observing weeds in a different way. Martin Royds, who we heard from earlier, also understands the power of observation and the importance of focusing on what you do want in the environment. So in holistic management, they teach you to focus on what you want rather than what you don't want. And it's amazing how that happens in everything in your life if you focus on what you want. When I came here, thistles were so bad, we had to slash 
tracks through paddocks to find the sheep and cattle and get them out of the paddock. And some places, the little Dexter tractor I had, would the front wheels would be leaving the ground on, on the thistle, so that thick. It'd push the wheels off the ground. So, and now, when we had the tour yesterday, and Matthew said, right, prize for anybody who can spot a thistle. And we went through three paddocks till we could find a thistle, and there was three black thistles there. So we don't have any thistles, and it's not because I spray. Stopped doing that 20 years ago. So now I don't, I'm not happy unless I look out and I see some grasses getting away, some going to seed, you know, all different heights. You know, we've got 80 different herbs and grasses in our pasture now, so there's always something that's doing its cycle at every time of the year. And have you seen uh, plant succession happening in your pastures here, Martin? Well, I used to spray everything or plough it and plant five species, three grasses, two clovers. Now I've got 80, so that's succession. Mm. I've promoted that. When I go into pastures, if, if, they, if they're becoming dominant with something, I hammer them and encourage something else. Sometimes I'll direct drill or throw seed out and trample that into the ground with the cattle. But yes, you can push... I, I want as much biodiversity or plant succession. And basically, your annual grasses, which sadly are most of the pasture grasses in most of, say, in New South Wales. Not a, not a good idea to have annual pastures when you're trying to graze stock because they can die out. And, yeah. So the perennials we promote and they are higher up in the succession order. One of the weeds that we see in this area, I mean, we're in Braidwood, it's the New South Wales Southern Tablelands, relatively heavy subsoils, granite drive soils around here. One of the weeds we often see in kind of degraded environments is serrated tussock. Yep. And very good point, James. How would you get rid of it? There's two options. Well, one, why is the weed there? It, it seems like it's the only plant that can grow. Yeah, in a bare ground, degraded soil, whatever. So they do. They grow well in a, a phosphorus-deficient degraded soil. Um, so you've got to look, as soon as I see a weed like that, you go, okay, so the previous management has blown, washed, destroyed this, the healthy soil that we did have there, and this weed's trying to recover it and get back again. So how do you push succession? Well, that plant is trying to scavenge nutrients and put them together and then start a process of building soil again. If we keep doing the way we used to do, set stocking, overgrazing, um, or even poisoning it with nasty chemicals and flupropanate, which is the main one they use for serrated tussock, kills serrated tussock for three years, but it kills native grasses for seven. However, what I've found is if you fertilise that serrated tussock, they're nitrogen scavengers, you give them too much nitrogen, they lap it up and they actually die quicker than putting Roundup on them. So I've seen them die, go brown in four days, and that's the end of your serrated tussock. It's the only time I ever use urea fertiliser. That urea fertiliser promotes then a lot of clovers and things like that. I've often seen glycines, microlina and things like that rapidly growing in through the dying serrated tussock. So that seems a bit counterintuitive to fertilise the weeds. It doesn't unless you understand succession and why the weed's there. As soon as you see a weed, you're just saying, it's an indicator plant, what's it trying to tell me? And if it's saying, oh, you've flogged this country, you've degraded your soil, oh, I'm terribly sorry, how about I now 
fertilise it, compost it, rehydrate it, rest it, let it recover, all those positive things. Um, and Peter Andrews calls these positive feedback loops. At Soils for Life we work to produce these materials to help other farmers but we can't do it without experts like you. So thank you, thank you so much. Weed management isn't going away, but it is changing. With so many farmers looking to reduce the time and money spent and increase their own health and the health of their soil in the process, people are changing their perspective. To find out more about the stories of the farmers in this episode, visit the Soils for Life website and check out the latest case studies. This podcast has been produced by the Grow Love Project in collaboration with Soils for Life and is supported through funding from the Australian Government's National Landcare Program. The episode was mixed and edited by Edgar Sgreste and we'd like to thank all our guests for their time and insights. For more information, check out the links in the show notes, sign up to the Soils for Life newsletter and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening.